please find Romans chapter 8 in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in a chair back in front of you. You can keep it. Uh, we love the Word of God, and God has spoken and speaks to us in His Word. Today we are in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, and it has to do with the indwelling Spirit of God. And this passage instructs us about the Spirit of God and exhorts us regarding how we are to respond. And so today we're going to learn something about the Spirit, and we're going to be led to do something as a result. So if you're able, I want to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to read Romans chapters Chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Lord, I pray that this would not just be any other day. This would be a day that you open our hearts to what you want for us in our hearts, in our homes, in, in your church. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word by your Spirit in our hearts for your glory today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So around about Father's Day this year, I saw an ad online for something called the Hyper Chiller. Did any of the dads get a Hyper Chiller this year for Father's Day? Anyone? Okay. So it was billed as the must-have kitchen or office accessory. So I'm sorry that you didn't get one of these. I did not get one either. The must-have kitchen or office accessory that quickly chills your fresh hot coffee without any dilution so that you have the perfect iced coffee or perfect iced tea in as little as one minute. And then it was billed as this. This is what caught my eye. It gives near instant gratification. Don't we crave instant gratification? We're like the hyperchiller. Spiritually, in life, we're like the, we want the hyper-chiller. We, we want our way. We want what we want when we want it. And we get demanding. And we want things to be easy and not difficult, and we don't want to put the work in. And then you come to something like sanctification, growth in holiness in Christ, and you realize right away it is slow going. It is not Instant, it is not quick, it is not painless. And you realize how easy it is to choose sin, and so we often give in. What this passage is telling us today is by God's Spirit, we need to say no 
to sin. Romans 8, 9 through 13 tells us something that every believer needs to know. How faith in Christ leads to life change by the Spirit of God. It is by the Spirit. And Romans 8, no surprise here, but Romans 8 is built on Romans chapters 1 through 7. And in those chapters, we read of the universal sinfulness of mankind and God's righteousness revealed in Christ in the gospel. We read of the free gift of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we learn about sanctification, this process. And the common theme through all of it is our inability and God's action on our behalf. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Built upon everything we've seen so far, verse 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation. God condemns sin by condemning Christ in our place. We are freed from slavery to sin. We couldn't escape. We were rescued by Christ's blood. We have been died for. Christ died in our place. And now we can obey God. You become a believer and you're like, wow, I can actually obey God now. That's a joyful discovery. And sanctification is set in motion and it's going to be completed. Philippians 1, 6 tells us God is going to complete the work that he started in us. There is a promise attached, this irrevocable, eternity-altering statement of no condemnation Four people justified in Christ, and the process, while slow, is purposeful, and it is overseen by God, and and it is about lifelong life change by the Spirit, and it unfolds in real time in every believer's life, living by the power of the third person of the Trinity. Last week, we were in verses five through eight, and it told us all about Setting our minds on the Spirit of God. How what preoccupies you is what shapes you and what shows your allegiance. We saw five contrasts between unbelievers and believers. The mindset on the flesh versus the mindset on the Spirit. Spiritual death versus spiritual life. Hostility to God versus friendship with God. Refusal to submit to God's law versus yielding to God in His Word. And being unable and unwilling to please God. Versus pleasing God. And now we're moving on in this passage and and we see in the context of life changed by the Spirit of God, what the Spirit does, what the Spirit enables and empowers us to do. So it informs us, it it will even correct us, and it inspires us, it calls us to action. We learn three things about the Spirit of God in this passage. First, in verse 9, that the Spirit changes a believer's nature. The Spirit changes your nature. Secondly, in verses 10 and 11, the Spirit guarantees the believer's eternity. Guarantees your eternity. And third, verses 12 and 13, the Spirit empowers believers to slay sin. So the Spirit changes your nature, guarantees your eternity, empowers you to kill sin. Let's begin in verse 9, and the first thing we see in this passage, that the indwelling Spirit changes your nature. This is instruction on what the Spirit does. 
The first word in verse 9, in English and in Greek, is you. You, however, that's how it starts, you, however. A significant change in focus and tone and voice, you. Four times in these verses, you. It's very pointed, very personal. It is addressed to those who not only identify as, but whom God has identified as his own. The second person personal pronoun, you, is, is addressing believers directly. So if you're a believer today, you've trusted in the finished work of Christ, you're not trusting in your own good works, you know that, that those are like filthy rags, you're trusting in Jesus Christ and his shed blood in your place on the cross and he died for your sins and he was buried and he rose on the third day and He's coming back, and you believe that, and you still staked your whole life on it, then this you is talking about you, and you need to receive it as such. You need to know that God is directing you to what he is saying, and he is addressing you directly right now, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in that verse, you. It is so personal. First in Greek sentence for emphasis, you. He's telling us, this is the God who cares about us, God who loves us, God who is for us, not against us. Our our shepherd, uh, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He's the one who provides for us. He's the one who reassures us. If you need reassurance today, receive this. This is something God is saying to you. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the spirit of God. This is what this is saying. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's saying, you however. He's just talked about those who are in the flesh. In the flesh is code word for those who don't know Christ. But in the spirit is code word for those who do know Christ. Believers have a new nature. In Adam, your spirit is dead in the flesh. In Christ, you are no longer in the flesh. You were baptized by the Spirit and alive spiritually. And you might stray. You might be deceived. You might might put confidence in the flesh. But you are no longer and will never be described as being in the flesh, biblically speaking, because that's talking about unbelievers. You're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. That tells you why you get so, so miserable as a believer when you're sinning. Because the spirit of God is convicting you of your sins and he is putting you back on track with God and it's, it's a painful process. If you're a Christian, you should be miserable when you're sinning. You're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. Move on on that verse. The next word, very significant, is if. If, and if you, if you grasp the meaning of this word, it unlocks all sorts of exciting things for you in understanding your relationship to Jesus. If, very significant word here, it means since or because. Okay, it's not a conditional if. Like, I will say, if I feel like it, I might mow the lawn. Or, if I feel like it, I might wash some dishes. 
That's a conditional sentence. That's what, that's what we would usually expect and, and, and assume. But here, it's not conditional. It's saying that you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit because the spirit dwells in us. So since the spirit dwells in you. And it assumes the reality of the indwelling of the Spirit with zero doubt. There is absolutely no doubt in in the construction of this sentence. The Spirit of God lives in believers. We are his dwelling place. And if not conditional, as if some Christians might be excluded, if in this context means since or because, it is presupposing the truth of the statement. Since, in fact, the Spirit dwells, the Spirit of God dwells, it it inhabits you, it lives in you, it's dwelling in you, it's made its home in you. In verse 2, the Spirit is called the Spirit of life, regenerating and renewing power. Here he is called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in the same sentence because he carries out God's purposes and applies Christ's redemptive work to the lives of believers. Galatians 4.6 calls the Spirit the Spirit of His Son. But I want you to notice there is a shift in, in verse 9 where first believers are being described as being in the Spirit. Now, the Spirit is described as being in believers. So the shift from believers being in the Spirit to the Spirit being in believers. But the Spirit indwells believers indicates who is saved. It's very important for us to understand it. It indicates who is saved. Some wrongly say that to be saved, you must experience certain manifestations of the Spirit. No. The Spirit must live in you to be saved. If you're saved, it's because the Spirit lives in you. The gift of the Spirit of God is the outcome of justification. We saw that back in Romans 5, verse 5. That hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that was given to us, who has been given to us. And then in chapter 7, verse 6, we serve God in the new way of the Spirit. So Jesus delivers you from indwelling sin by the indwelling Holy Spirit. What does it mean that The Spirit dwells in us, that the Spirit takes up residence in us. Dwells, that's the Greek word, means to be at home. It's from the word for house. It means to be at home, to be in your own home. So the Holy Spirit has has indwelled and is indwelling every single believer. You know how you do find friends, you know, on your phone, the find friends? Well, if you did that with the Holy Spirit, you'd be like, find friends. All the people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, there'd just be dots everywhere, moving all around the whole globe. The Holy Spirit has made his home in every believer. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you're no longer in the flesh. You are a new creation in Christ. You are in the Spirit. The Spirit of God makes his home in every person who trusts in Jesus Christ. Now, if there is no evidence of his presence by, by the fruit he produces, which you can check up on in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you can't claim Christ as Savior and Lord. You can run into an unbeliever, by the way, who has 
a, a very strict moral compass that lives more morally than any Christian you know. You can run into believers who seem to be disobeying God at every turn. But the fundamental nature of a person is determined by God, whether you're in the flesh or in the spirit. Jesus told his disciples that the spirit of God would live in them. John 14, 17, he said, he, he lives with you and will be in you. In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is correcting the church, he says in verses 19 and 20, ask them a question, do you not know? Now, you hear a, sentence, you hear a question like this and someone's asking you, don't you know? You're like, oh, I should know this, right? I should know this. And so here's what he's saying to the church. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Temple describes the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, the inner sanctuary of the Old Testament tabernacle. There, God's presence would appear in a cloud and meet the high priest once a year in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would bring blood of a slain animal, would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and God would grant forgiveness and mercy to the priest and to his people. Today, no temple, no animal sacrifices. Christ was sacrificed in our place once for all. Believers then are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, sanctified and forgiven by the blood of Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, indwelt by Christ, indwelt by the Father. The Bible tells us very clearly that every believer is indwelt by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit gives you new life, gives life to a dead soul in new birth and regeneration, John chapter 3 and Titus 3, 5. One writer put it this way, the Holy Spirit is given the believing sinner the moment he puts his faith in the Lord Jesus, not sometime afterwards as is erroneously taught in some quarters, since the believing sinner becomes the possession of the Lord Jesus the moment he believes and must possess the Holy Spirit as an indweller. What Romans 8 is teaching us is that this Holy Spirit makes permanent residence in every believer. So you look at the Old Testament and you see that the Spirit of God was coming and going, came and went, empowering saints for service, but not remaining with them. But in Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit is the identifying mark of a believer. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, you might want to turn there or, just, or write it down, it says this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Spirit of Christ, another name for the Holy Spirit. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, and we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. So to be in the family of God, you have to have the Spirit of God. Your devotion, 
Your good works will never get you salvation. Only the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 5. So you either have the Spirit of Christ, synonymous with being saved, or you are unsaved and belong to Satan. It says, no one who lacks the Spirit belongs to Christ. So everyone who trusts Christ has the Spirit. The title, even, Spirit of Christ, Paul says the same thing about the Spirit and Christ. In verse 9, the Spirit lives in you. Verse 10, the Christ is in you. Spurgeon said the difference between the regenerate and the unregenerate is not one of degree, but of kind. Because God changes your nature in Christ. The Spirit changes your nature. The presence and the fullness of Christ is realized in your life by the indwelling Spirit of God as you have fellowship with Him. We are in the Spirit. The Spirit is in us. That's the test of spiritual life. Some think that you can be saved and not receive the Holy Spirit until later on when you truly yield to God. No. The meaning here is quite clear. No Spirit of Christ, not born again. When you received Christ, you got all of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You do not receive the Spirit of God later. You should be very uh, suspicious if someone is telling you that you need to receive the Holy Spirit separately after being saved. And I want to be really clear about this. This is not about, well, I was taught that, or I think that. This is about what does the Bible actually teach? And and to understand the Spirit of God. God is, is instructing us about the Spirit of God here. You must understand the nature of God that the scriptures are, are Trinitarian, that this passage we're in is Trinitarian, that the passage that we're going through right now, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in this passage. It's being referred to. God has revealed himself in his word. He is triune. Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're co-equal, they're co-eternal. Here's what happens in the life of of believers, and it all depends really on maybe how we're wired or what we've heard or what we've latched onto, but what happens is that a believer can start to downplay or forget about or otherwise ignore either the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, And, and you're not supposed to ignore God. We're supposed to attend to the things of God. Last week we were talking about the setting the mind on the things of the Spirit. We're supposed to be preoccupied with what God loves. So we ought to be very in tune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And sound doctrine corrects inaccurate thinking and teaching. Um, some have the idea that, that living by the Spirit is, is disengaging your mind and letting it run wild and riding a wave of feelings and impressions. Contrary to taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And none of us should bypass huge chunks of scripture meant to shape our understanding. Or even this little chunk we're looking at today. And I just want to maybe do a little sidebar here and say this. You know, I am called by God to shepherd this flock by his grace. And not alone. In and by and through and with God. And with a plurality of fellow elders whom we know and love. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and he said this, pay close attention to yourselves 
and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. And then it says, he says, after I depart, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, trying to pull disciples after them and after their teaching. And your leaders at Grace, we, we have to hold firmly to the faithful word of God and we've got to protect the flock and we all know that our grasp of the word of God can become distorted. It can become even, this is a crazy thought, but you can actually be holding on to something that you say, oh, this is what I think the Bible is about and you can raise it up against the knowledge of God. That's why we have to be very careful that we should not accept false teaching about the Spirit's work inaccurate or insufficient or deficient ideas and here's why if you or i hold to something that the bible doesn't teach it affects our our christian life and it affects the way we interact with god and the way we interact with other people and it affects our worship it affects our evangelism it affects our discipleship when it comes to biblical truth we we have to have an open heart and a willing mind to receive it. It's very easy for someone to say, I won't believe it, even if you show it to me straight out. But you don't want biblical truth to go in one ear and out the other, as if like you know, the air conditioning's on and the windows are open and it's gone. Jesus wants to set you free by the truth and, and so that you won't be enslaved to lies. God does not want any of us to be enslaved to some kind of teaching that is not biblically accurate. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You see that? He says, he will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now what are Christians to guard against? Grieving the Spirit and, and denying the Spirit and all sorts of things like that, but we are to know that the Spirit dwells in us. And this is mind-blowing. If you start thinking, if you start thinking what the Bible tells us about the Spirit of God. That the Spirit of God, who spoke countless galaxies and billions of stars into existence, lives in me. That the all-powerful creator of all who spoke the world into existence dwells in me. That the one who made volcanoes and hydrogen and asteroids, and nitrogen, and mercury lives in me, and I don't blow up. I'm not consumed. Uh, can, you, can you see how mind-blowing that is, that, that God lives in every believer spiritually, and he's the one that created every power. We aren't vaporized in his presence. He has given us love and, and mercy. He has, he has chosen to show us mercy. Believers in Jesus are, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. When you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives you eternal life, identifies you with God, and gives you a new nature. So the first thing you see here, the Spirit changes your nature. Move on to the second thing with me, please. 
The indwelling spirit guarantees your eternity. Verses 10 and 11, it ensures that you'll always be with God. It answers the question of Romans 7, 24, who will rescue me from the body of this death? Our deliverance is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross and worked out by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 10, but if, since, because Christ is in you, Ephesians 3.17 tells us Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Righteousness that is credited to you because of Christ, that it's imputed righteousness, and you have life by the spirit of God now, but also eternally, forever. Because the spirit of God provides resurrection life, the spirit who is life in himself brings life to the person he indwells because that person has already been granted God's righteousness in justification. And the spirit seals you for the day of redemption. You see this in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. It says this. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. At that moment, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is the guarantee of our eternity. The Spirit seals you for the day of redemption. And then verse 11, Romans 8, 11. If, since, because the Spirit of him, the Father, the Spirit of him who raised Christ, that's the Father, anointed, Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Spirit of him, the Father, who raised Christ, the anointed one, from the dead dwells in you. And by the way, there's another name for the Spirit of God here. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Another name for the Holy Spirit. Him who raised Jesus from the dead is the Father. The Spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies. See, it says, through his Spirit who dwells in you. The presence of the Spirit of God in your mortal body is a guarantee of bodily resurrection because God raised Jesus. Your body that is, well, if you're young, you're, you know, you're climbing up the hill, your body is young and strong. If you're older like some of the rest of us, you're, 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 you're walking down the other side of the hill probably, and you realize your body is falling apart with aches and pains and all sorts of things. And what happens is through the sacrifice of his son and the work of his spirit, God gives life to his people in the present tense, okay? You have freedom from condemnation. But that life has not yet been fully realized. His sanctifying work is not yet completed. Believers face the reality of physical death. This verse says our bodies are mortal, mortal bodies, and God's life-giving work is not finished until your body has been raised. One day, your body will follow your spirit. Now, the Greeks thought completely otherwise. They thought that the physical body was bad and to be rejected and one day would be left behind and the spiritual was the good part. This verse turns that upside down. Someday your body will be renewed and made alive by the Spirit 
And I think that's one reason why you should take care of your body. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit right now. You should live healthy and not abuse your body. But the Spirit guarantees that we will ultimately be saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 14 says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Spirit is life and peace for the believer on account of Christ's righteousness. And the blessing that caps all of that off is the resurrection of the body, our future hope. So ultimately, the Spirit of God will raise and transform your body. Sin has been judged. Sin has been defeated. And it won't be finally vanquished until the return of Christ in glory. But your arrival, your arrival after this life into God's presence is guaranteed by the indwelling Spirit of God. The indwelling spirit changes your nature. The indwelling spirit guarantees your eternity. And then third, let's look at verses 12 and 13. The indwelling spirit gives you the power to slay sin. You're not powerless over sin. You have power by the spirit to put sin to death. Now, here is where Paul stops instructing and starts exhorting, okay? From what he has, what God has done through Christ and the Spirit to now what the believer is expected to do in response. This is exhortation. Verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We have an obligation. We are debtors to the Spirit. No obligation to live by the sinful nature. New obligation to serve God by the Spirit. Here's what verse 12 does for us. It clears up and teaches beyond a shadow of a doubt that believers still wrestle the sin nature within, indwelling sin despite being crucified with Christ and despite having a new nature in Christ. And it isn't easy and it is a war and if you just found that out, welcome to the war with all of us. The flesh remains but we don't have to live according to it. That sanctification is necessary It's not an ambition, it's a duty. Look at verse 13. If you live all the time, constantly, according to, according to, as the basic operating system, the flesh, you will die. Okay, means that you're not a believer. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And there's this, There's this combination of God's goodness here where God is indwelling the believer and the believer needs to respond to that indwelling and that new life positively in in actions that please God. What this is telling us is that a believer will or does a desire to put to death the deeds of the body. And a believer uh, desires goodness. A believer repents and the temptations of the flesh are ongoing. They're always present. That's why we, the tense of this verb here is continually put them to death. This is not like, hey, I did it once. I'm covered forever. Wouldn't that be nice if we had the hyperchiller spirituality? Hey, death is now defeated forever in my life. Now, death was defeated at the cross, but your sin is still active. We crave that instant gratification. We want the spiritual hyperchiller and, but by this, what we're being told is by the Spirit, we should say no to the flesh. Okay? By the, in the power, we should live in the power of the Holy Spirit as we live this life on earth. 
Put off sin, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be preoccupied with Jesus and his will. Uh, as, as Romans 13, 14 says, basically refuse to make plans or provision for the flesh. Like don't plan out your sin. You know how it goes when you're thinking about doing a certain sin and you're like, so here's how it will go. And you're kind of like relishing it. You say no right away. Christian life is the life in the spirit. The spirit of, of God living in and through you. It is not you trying to, really hard to be like Christ. It is not try, you trying to be Christ-like. It is not a matter of trying yourself. It is a matter of dying to yourself. The spirit of Christ lives in and through you. Recently I visited and hiked in uh, Zion and and Bryce Canyon, and even up at Hume Lake and Sequoia's Kings Canyon area. And every time I hiked, I didn't wear sandals. I wore shoes designed for rugged terrain. But I want to tell you this. The spirit in you, this is good news, folks. The spirit in you is strong, all-powerful, all-knowing, and able to handle the treacherous terrain of your heart. And you know how treacherous your heart can be. That the Spirit of God is all-powerful and, and knows how to navigate the rugged terrain of your household and your heart and your workplace and the place of your everyday life. Everywhere you go, as a child of God in Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God, you might run into people saying, I don't believe that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And little do they know the power that is in you. 1 John 5.21 tells us, little children, keep yourself from idols. Talking about killing sin and getting sin out of your life. An idol is something we define ourselves by that isn't Christ. That we, we, we're envious because our idols get diverted angry because our idols get delayed. We're, we're resentful because our idols get broken. We're depressed because our idols get smashed. We're anxious even because our idols get out of control and overwhelm us. I get jealous and envious of others' gifts. I get resentful when others get the attention I crave. Those are my problems. Well, we have human responsibility in play here. If you, by the Spirit, Put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And did you notice, even with human responsibility, our effort can only be accomplished, how? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. Now, the killing of sin is known as, big word here, but mortification. Mortification, like if you say, oh, I was mortified, I could have died. The killing of sin is known as mortification. And the reason why is, because it comes from the, the King James uh, verse 13 where it says, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And so it's coming from that word, but mortification is not a little word that means not very much. It is a ruthless attack. It is a wholehearted resistance to sinful practices. The Greek word is thanatote, and it means something violent and complete. It means to reject knowingly and completely everything you know to be wrong. 
to declare war on wrong attitudes and behaviors and to give them no dwelling, to take no prisoners. I was just talking to someone this morning after first hour and they're new to grace and they said something about when they first came, people didn't greet them very warmly, but this person, so honest, I love it, they said, but I was just waiting to be offended. I was just waiting to be offended. See, we should not play games with sin. We should, we should not say, you know, I'm just gonna wean myself off of it, or I can control this. No, you can't. You need to get as far away as possible as you can. Not just avoid sin, but avoid things that lead to it. Even the gray areas. Maybe especially the gray areas. And again, if you're one of those Christians that are like, well, nobody told me about this when I first came to faith in Christ. Welcome to the war. Welcome to the war on sin brought to you by the indwelling, all-powerful Holy Spirit of God. You are not a slave to sin. You are to slay sin. But how do we do that by the Spirit? How do we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? I want to quickly, just quickly run through seven ways to slay sin. I think they'll be helpful to you. They've been helpful to me. Number one, surrender to God. This is by the Spirit. You can only put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Otherwise, you're going to get shredded, sliced, diced, slammed, thrashed, however, put to shame. By the Spirit of God, we put to death the deeds of the body. And it's like this. If you are, then you can. If you are, then you can. If you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, then you can put to death the deeds of the body. Jonathan Edwards said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Surrender to God. Number two, make wise choices. I know this is probably overworked, but let me just say this. Every little, small, minute choice you make and I make is important because they build up. You need to die little deaths to yourself. We, we live in a world of excess. We have excess sinning and spending and working and playing and all kinds of excessive things. And the only thing God wants us to do in excess is love and serve him and others. And he excessively loves us and provides. He lavished his grace upon us. A friend of mine put it like this. He pulled the dump truck up and dumped his goodness on us, just poured it all out on us. Backed up the truck and gave it all to us. Putting to death the, de- the, the, the deeds of the flesh, verse 13, is, is actually, takes us back to last week, about minding the things of the Spirit. Being preoccupied with and craving what God loves. The Spirit of God lives in every believer. When God saves someone, he, the Spirit takes up residence in them. That is why you can crave what God loves. That's why you can crave the word and crave prayer and crave worship and crave evangelism and discipleship and fellowship. The Spirit of God indwells every believer and inspires and empowers our worship and our service. That is why we can set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That is why we can consider the members of our earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. That is why we can put those aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from our mouths because the the indwelling Holy Spirit inspires and empowers our worshipful obedience. 
So make wise choices. Number three, keep on fighting. And I'll just say this. Keep on fighting. Don't give up. Don't give in. All the verbs in verses 12 and 13 emphasize active, engaged, ongoing effort. So keep on fighting. Number four, burn sin bridges. Burn sin bridges. Cut off the access. Owen says, rise mightily against the first sign of sin. Sin must be pulled up by the roots. Sin grows in hearts that are full of self-pity, that think they're owed something by God. They think they're not getting what they deserve. They think that life is not fair, that their needs are not being met, that life is hard, that God owes me, that I'm entitled. God owes us nothing but wrath and hell. Just remind yourself you are a debtor to grace. Burn sin bridges. And number five, use God's weapons, prayer and the word of God. Talk with God. Listen to his word. Pour out your heart to God and respond in joyful obedience. How did Jesus battle Satan? Matthew 4, by the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. Use God's weapons. And number six, fight sin together. Armies fight together. You don't send one soldier out to go against the army. Uh, we often think of like, hey, I shouldn't judge my brothers and sisters, and I shouldn't cause them to stumble. We should be thinking about this, Romans 14. But if you take Romans chapters 12 through 16, it pictures fighting sin together, especially chapter 12. Read that chapter with that in mind. And then fights in together, and then seven, and lastly, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. John Owen said, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. The power to refuse sin comes from Christ's defeat of sin at the cross. And it is more than, than us staying away from sinful behavior and resisting sin. It is about the motives of our hearts. It is about where our heart is at. And, and, the, and the obligation we know we have to God. This is how you change your mind about sin. You remember the gospel. You remember the gospel. You remember what Christ has done and will do for you. And you feel love and thankfulness to serve God as you are exposed to the unfathomable love of God in Christ. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians 3.17, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. You know his love and are grateful. The Son deserves our worship. Sin deserves to be treated with contempt, not courtesy. It is our enemy. Spurgeon said, if you will not have death unto sin, you will have sin unto death. No alternative. If you do not die to sin, you shall die for sin. If you do not slay sin, sin will slay you. I know that we've all had probably our minds and our attention on a news story this week about the Thai tunnel rescue. That was a wonderful story of, of rescuers and countries and diverse people coming together uh, for a common cause. Truly inspiring. On July 10th, after 18 days trapped in a flooded Thailand cave, all 12 boys in their coach had been freed and following this astonishingly uh, miraculous rescue mission, really. I was just reading an article um, yesterday that's coming out in ESPN, the magazine, uh, July 30th in the Heroes edition, and it is featuring the Thai Navy SEALs. Who knew that the Thai Navy had SEALs? Did you know this? They, they miraculously 
rescued this Thai soccer team trapped deep in this treacherous cave. And here's what the, the article said. Maybe we need heroes, real ones, ones who pull off feats that leave other heroes in awe more than we care to admit. And if the heroics are so astounding that nobody will ever be able to explain what it was really like, the SEALs themselves would later post on Facebook, we are not sure if this is a miracle, a science, or what. They said, maybe we'll nevertheless cling to the memory of this moment, to this evidence of what it's like when dark turns to light. And we all know this. Some people will refuse to acknowledge the miraculous in life. They'll refuse to acknowledge the miraculous even in this cave rescue. They'll say, oh no, it's all about the indomitable spirit of man. But others will see the truth. And in your life, okay, you're going out the door in a few moments, and in your life, you've got to know this. The Holy Spirit is, is your hero rescuer who goes into the cave and sets you free over and over and over again and applies the benefits of the finished work of Christ on the cross that were bought for you. We thank you, Lord, that your indwelling spirit changes us and, and guarantees our eternity and, and, wow, gives us power to even say no to sin. Thank you, Lord, that when we set our minds on the indwelling spirit, you get center stage. No longer is our prayer just for ourselves, but we pray, Lord, use, use me for your glory. Bless others through me. Your will be done. Lord, may, may I become more insignificant. May, may people see you as most significant. Lord, whatever makes me look smaller, whatever makes me less prideful, less self-centered, less center stage, less the determiner of everything, the better. Thank you, Lord, for reassuring us today and reminding us that you are at work in us to keep changing us by your spirit, through your word, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.